Friends, one of the things we are called to do as a congregation, as a church, as followers of Jesus Christ, is to encourage one another to trust in the Lord, to rely on the Lord, on our daily experiences. The song we have just sung speaks of that uh, need for us to come to the Lord, even when doubts, even when our hopes feel weak and, and, and strangely dim. We want to come to the Lord. We want to encourage one another. Part of that encouragement is opening God's Word and reading what He has to speak to us and recognizing that the Lord speaks to, to His people, even to those who are inside His people. And This morning, our passage comes from the book of Isaiah, chapter 57. And I encourage you to open your Bibles to Isaiah 57. I'll be reading from verse 1 to the end of the chapter, verse 21. If you're visiting us this morning and... Uh, uh, you perhaps may not have brought a Bible with you. We would love for you to grab a Bible provided in the chairs in front of you. We'd love for you to open that Bible to page number 616. If you don't own a Bible, we would love for you to take the Pew Bible home with you and to read it. We'd love to talk to you about any questions any of you might have about the Bible. This morning, our passage comes from the book of Isaiah, chapter 56, 57. Here is the word of the Lord for each of us. The righteous man perishes, and no one lays it to heart. Devout men are taken away, while no one understands. For the righteous man is taken away from calamity. He enters into peace. They rest in their beds who walk in their uprightness. But you, draw near, sons of the sorceress, Offspring of the adulterer and the loose woman, whom are you mocking? Against whom do you open your mouth wide and stick out your tongue? Are you not children of transgression, the offspring of deceit? You who burn with lust among the oaks under every green tree, who slaughter your children in the valleys under the clefts of the rocks, among the smooth stones of the valley is your portion. They... They are your lot. To them you have poured out a drink offering. You have brought a grain offering. Shall I relent for these things? On a high and lofty mountain you have set your bed, and there you went up to offer sacrifice. Behind the door and the doorpost you have set up your memorial. For deserting me you have uncovered your bed. You have gone up to it. You have made it wide. And you have made a covenant for yourself with them. You have loved their bed, and you have looked on nakedness. You journeyed to the king with oil and multiplied your perfumes. You sent your envoys far off and sent down even to Sheol. You were wearied with the length of your way, but you did not say, It is hopeless, for you found new life for your strength, and so you were not faint. Whom did you dread and fear, so that you lied, and did not remember me, did not lay it to heart? Have I not held my peace, even for a long time, and you do not fear me? I will declare your righteousness and your deeds, but they will not profit you. When you cry out, let your collection of idols deliver you. The wind will carry them off. A breath will take them away. 
But he who takes refuge in me shall possess the land and shall inherit my holy mountain. And it shall be said, build up, build up, prepare the way, remove every obstruction from the people's way. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place. And also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit, to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. For I will not contend forever, nor will I always be angry. For the spirit will grow faint before me and the breath of life that I made. Because of the iniquity of his unjust gain, I was angry. I struck him. I hid my face and was angry. But he went on, backsliding in the way of his own heart. I have seen his ways. But I will heal him. I will lead him and restore comfort to him and his mourners, creating the fruit of the lips. Peace. Peace to the far and to the near, says the Lord, and I will heal him. But the wicked are like the tossing sea, for it cannot be quiet, and its waters toss up mire and dirt. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Would you bow with me in prayer, asking God to bless the preaching of his word and our hearts as we hear. Father, you are a God who reveals yourself to us. You reveal your word. and You reveal the ways that we should go. Father, we pray that we would listen attentively to your word this morning. We pray that you would speak to our hearts in a way that draws us to you. We pray that you would convict. We pray that you would confront. We pray that you would heal. Pray that you would restore and revive. We pray all this for the glory of your great name in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, and through the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit among us. We pray this for your glory. Amen. Chapter 57 is a chapter of contrasts. Sometimes when we try to define a particular thing, whether it's teaching our children what to do or teaching students what, is, what they should know or what is right, encouraging one another what is right and how to live well in God's sight, part of that teaching is not only presenting the positive, the way we should go, but also presenting the contrast, the opposite, the way we should not go. And sometimes presenting both the the positive and the negative in contrast helps us to, to get a better picture of what, of what we're supposed to do. Well, this morning in the passage we just read, we, ha- we have a, a chapter that's full of contrasts. And we see the contrast uh, from the very beginning. Uh, there is a, a, a righteous man, and at the very end, there's a wicked. The contrast in this chapter is, be- is between the, the way of righteousness and the way of wickedness. We also see the contrast in the way this chapter is divided. If you notice, the first half of the chapter is filled with with describing the way of rebellion. The second half of the chapter is described 
of, of the way that God deals with those who rely on the Lord. We also see that in each of the, in the two halves, there's a bit of a contrast in each of them. The, the, the half that deals with rebellion actually begins with the righteous man, and then the rest contrasts rebellion. The, ch- the half of the chapter that deals with, with reliance on the Lord ends with a contrast with the wicked. This chapter is full of contrasts. And this morning, we want to see how God divides humanity. He speaks of humanity on this, on this plane of, of two categories. And there's only two categories in God's sight. The righteous and the wicked. There's no middle ground. Those who purpose to pursue God, to seek Him, and those who choose to rebel against Him. Those who choose to ignore His ways. Those who choose to go about their own way. Well, that would be part of rebellion. And this morning, each of us find ourselves on one of the two camps. And this morning, uh, we want to look at this passage. There's a subtle surprise, however. There's a subtle surprise that becomes apparent when we remember the context of the previous chapter. In chapter 56, God assured the foreigners who are not part of God's people, God assured them that if they commit to the Lord, they will not be separated from the Lord or from His people. God promises to receive all the outsiders who would commit themselves to the Lord. And this is a wonderful promise for all those who are still outside the camp, still, still, are still far away from the Lord. It's a wonderful promise that God gives that anyone who turns to the Lord He will not cast away. He will not push away. And the church should be a place where those who turn to the Lord, whether they're socially outcast or foreigners, should welcome them in. That was a great news last week. But the surprise that we get in this chapter is that while the faithful foreigners and outcasts are welcomed and assured a place among God's people, The faithless insiders are sternly warned and threatened to be outside God's promises. This passage, in a way, I've entitled it, Two Ways to Live. Another way to entitle this passage is Warning to the Insiders. In chapter 57, God is exposing the rebellion of the insiders. (laughs) The insiders should have no confidence if they take path the path of rebellion. So the challenge of this chapter is that the two ways are present among those who are already inside God's people. As long as we have breath of life on this earth, sin continues to remain even with God's people, even among God's people, even in God's people. Even those who have experienced God's salvation must continue to fight off the sinful, rebellious tendencies of our corrupted nature. This morning, as we look at this chapter, we're going to have two points. The contrast is between the way of rebellion and the way of depending on the Lord. Let's look at each of these contrasts, the way of rebellion and the way of depending on the Lord. In verses 1 through 13, we see the way of rebellion clearly exposed. And we see in this in these verses, six characteristics about the way of rebellion. So if you like taking notes, 
we are in point one, and there's going to be six subpoints that characterize the way of rebellion. And each of these, you may find yourself that, that some, of these, some of these may not may be very far away from where you're at. But some of them may be actually hitting close to home. So just be careful. I, I hope that as we listen to this intently, uh, we're going to be seeking to understand, are there any ways in which my own heart, my own life, follows some of these characteristics of the way of rebellion? Now here's the first one. The rebellious don't understand the death of the righteous. The rebellious don't understand the death of the righteous. Look at verse 1. The righteous man perishes and no one lays it to heart. Devout men are taken away while no one understands. For the righteous man is taken away from calamity. Now all people eventually die. But not all die alike. Some people, when they die, they die only to await their eternal punishment. But when the righteous person dies, look what happens to him. Look at verse 2. He enters into peace. They rest into their beds who walk in their uprightness. It's those who commit themselves to the Lord, who turn away from their rebellion and trust and rely on Christ for their salvation, to them, death is an entrance into peace. God transforms even the deadliest of our earthly enemies, namely death. God transforms even our, even our deadliest of our earthly enemies into a path to peace. But many in Isaiah's time who ignored God didn't get it. In this text, the death of the righteous was actually God's act of calling his people home before he brought the calamity of his discipline against the land. It was an act of great kindness on the Lord to call his righteous people home before all the calamity was going to come. Friends, the rebellious people don't understand that even in dying, God cares well for his people. Whether God calls some people home late in their age, after decades and decades and decades of life, or whether calls some earlier, much earlier than they would like it to happen. Be assured of this. If you belong to God, you're entering into peace. God is calling you home. He's doing a good thing. Is this the same way for everyone? No. If we go to verse 21 at the end of the chapter, we read explicitly, God says, for the wicked, there is no peace. It is only for the righteous. It is only for those who belong to God that Death is an entrance into peace. So the rebellious don't understand the death of the righteous. A second characteristic about the way of rebellion. The way of rebellion defies God. The way of rebellion defies God. Look at verse 4. Whom are you mocking? Against whom do you open your mouth wide and stick your tongue out? In rebellion against God, the people often forget who they're rebelling against. They minimize their minds on who God is. The pride of the human heart makes us believe that when we, that when we rebel against God, that we actually can win. 
The only reason why we would consider rebelling against God is because we actually think we could win. That would be better for us. Ways people rebel against God or, or don't realize what they rebel against. Some, for some people, rebelling against God may be actually ignoring God's word. For some, it may look like, well, the Bible is just a, just a bunch of words that were written by humans. It's true that they were written by humans, but they're also the word of God. And God stands by his word. So when people, people can easily mock God by ignoring intentionally God's word. How foolish it is that we would think that the God who spoke the universe into being, the God who created the heavens and the earth by merely speaking them to being, how foolish it is for us to think that we as human beings could stand against such a God, rebel against him, and come out of that as winners. How foolish it is to think. And yet, rebellion defies God. The prophet asked, whom are you mocking? Do you realize? The medicine that we have in this chapter given to us to, to help us realize against this temptation is verse 15. Thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. One of the greatest ways we can protect ourselves from rebelling against God is to cultivate a high view of God. Cultivate a high view of God recognize his greatness. And the way we can do that best is by reading his word and caring good attention, close attention to what are we learning from our reading about who God is, about his greatness, about his power, about his majesty. Read, your, read the word of God with that sense of, of seeking to understand that, that our, our minds are naturally bent on minimizing God. Our natural minds are on default who always tries to skew God into a smaller picture. So read God's word, asking God, help me, help me to see the greatness of who you are. In verses 5 through 10, God brings out two specific ways that his people rebelled in Isaiah's time. And, and, and these two specific ways they rebelled show us how small of a picture they had of God and how big of a picture they had of themselves or of other idols. Now, these two ways in which, in which God's people rebelled may not be the only way, or were definitely not the only way the Israelites rebelled, and may not be the, the ways you and I may find rebelling today. But there's some, a few things we can learn about these specifics of their rebellion, even though the details don't, are no longer with us today. There's a few things we can learn about their rebellion. The first way they rebelled was that they participated in the idolatry of the Canaanite religion. They were worshipers of God, but they thought, let's, let's start incorporating some other practices that the, the nations around us are doing. After all, um, they, what, what hurt could it have on us? It might, it might help. So they became creative. They started integrating some of the religious practices. They did not overtly and openly denied God. They were trying to continue to worship God, but begin introducing some new practices. And the two practices that are exposed here are in verse 5 and then verse uh, 7 and 8. The two practices are, first of all, some were participating in the fertility cult. 
engaging in sexual immorality as a way of worshiping the Canaanite gods, hoping to elicit them to bring about fertility in humans, in animals, and in their crops. The Canaanite religion used sexuality as part of their worship services, their worship practices, as a way of appeasing the, the gods to, to bring about more prosperity. In verse 5, we see that they also were engaging in the cult of Molech. The Canaanites would kill their young infants as an act of worship, offering their infants to the Canaanite god, Molech, to charm him against death. Because the Canaanites were, were, were seeking to try to appease their god, the god of Molech, against death. And the way they would do it they would give up their infants to be burned as sacrifices. It's hard to imagine. It's hard to imagine a more, more darkness. The Canaanites would do it, but, but what's even harder to imagine is that the Israelites began buying into it. The Israelites began practicing it as well. So in verse 6, God gives a verdict. He says, among the smooth stones of the valley is your portion. They, they are your lot. In Psalm 16, 5, David said that the Lord was his lot, that the Lord was his portion. But here in Isaiah 57, God says to his rebellious people who would integrate and, and bring syncretic practices uh, from the other religions into their worship of God. God says, you are doing that? Well, the stones are your lot. They have turned away from, their, from the worship of the living God towards stones. And now God says, stones will be your portion. Friends, uh, the specific forms of idolatry may be different today than what the Israelites experienced in Isaiah's time. Friends, Idolatry has not fallen off the face of the earth. Today, the, the equivalent of worshiping the God of fertility might be replacing God with anything that secures our economic prosperity. But today, our society also worships the God of sensuality and sexual freedom. We have various ways in which the same gods continue to be worshipped today. The details are different, but the gods are the same. God's judgment against our rebellion is to leave us to our idols. The third way, we, a third characteristic about rebellion, about the way of rebellion, is that the way of rebellion is a change of loves. The way of rebellion is a change of loves. In verse 7 and 8, we see more details about their idolatry. And, and these, these verses we could explore. Uh, there, there could be a... a a whole section just on these verses. But in verse 8, there's one detail I want to point out. In verse 8, we are told that the rebellious love their bed. This means that they engage in idolatry, not simply for the profit they were looking to get out of it. They're engaged in, in this cultic fertility worship. Um, and they were hoping that they would appease the gods to, to bring about more economic prosperity. But here in verse 8, we're told it's not just the 
the outcome of the prosperity that they love to have. That's not why they engaged in that worship. They actually have fallen into loving the worship itself, loving their beds. This means, this means that at the heart of idolatry is a heart that loves the idol. Idolatry never comes alone, dear friends. It comes with a new set of loves. That's why, dear friends, one of the ways we protect against idolatry is to examine ourselves, our own hearts, carefully, regularly. What is it that we love most? When God gave the great commandment, the great Shema, in the, in the book of Deuteronomy to the Israelites, the second generation of Israelites, He said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. Friends, one way to protect our hearts against rebellion is to examine carefully and regularly what is it that we love. The way of rebellion is a change of loves. A fourth characteristic about the way of rebellion, the way of rebellion gives us a false confidence. The way of rebellion gives us a false confidence. In verse 9 and 10, God exposes another manifestation of their rebellion. You journeyed to the king with oil and multiplied your perfumes. You sent your envoys far off and sent down even to Sheol. You were wearied with the length of your way, but you did not say, it is hopeless. You found new life for your strength. In other words, the people who take the path of rebellion find ways to keep themselves going on the path of rebellion. They find ways to keep themselves hopeful on the path of rebellion. The path of rebellion may be a very hopeful path in the moment. The path of rebellion may be a very resourceful path in the moment. For, for the Israelites, the way they did it, uh, here Isaiah reminds them, or God reminds them through Isaiah, that when they sent the king of Egypt to try to buy his services against the Assyrians, or the second time, when they actually went to the king of Assyria to make a peace treaty with him by selling him a lot of riches of, of, of Judah, they were, they were putting up everything they could in those carts to go off and send them off to, to the kings of the other nations, seeking help from them in order to protect the land, in order to continue to stay in the land. God said, you did all that, and you still, you still had, did not think that this was hopeless. You were very optimistic in your rebellion. Well, friends, be, be assured of this. When we're in the heat of rebellion, we're very optimistic about our rebellion. God says, you did not know that it is hopeless. You did not say, you did not think, you did not realize. The way of rebellion does not feel hopeless in the moment. It's optimistic, it's promising, it looks like resourceful. It gives us the impression that we can keep going. But it proves to be hopeless in the end. A fifth characteristic about the way of rebellion. The way of rebellion is a change of fears. It's a way of rebellion is a change of fears. Taking the path of rebellion, we actually stop fearing the Lord. Uh, earlier, one of the characteristics was it's a change of loves. Now it's a change of fears. Look at verse 11. God says, Whom did you dread and fear so that you lied and did not remember me, did not lay it to heart? Have I not held my peace even for a long time, and you did not fear me? In other words, God is asking them, Who is it that they have begun fearing instead of the Lord? Because clearly they have stopped fearing the Lord. It is amazing that in exposing rebellion, 
the rebellion of his people, God examines what they fear. That should give us a reason to think carefully about our own tendencies to to rebel. When we have a tendency to rebel, recognize that there's a change of fear. And God says, who are you fearing instead of me? Who do you think is more powerful than me? Who do you think that is more worthy of your attention than me? Friends, before we begin rebelling against God, we begin fearing God less. The heart exchanges the object of what we fear. Rebelling and choosing not to fear the Lord go hand in hand. That's why one of the greatest things we can do as we gather regularly, week in, week out, one of the things that we can do as members of this congregation when we covenant with one another is to, is to commit to, to examine one another, ourselves, and care for one another, give oversight to one another, in case some of us start wandering off in, in fearing God less, in loving God less. And we allow other fears and other loves to begin seeping through and infiltrating. Because that is a fertile soil. Other loves, other fears are the fertile soil for rebellion against the Lord. A sixth way that rebellion manifests. The way of rebellion will leave us empty and helpless. The way of rebellion will leave us empty and helpless. God concludes exposure of their rebellion by making two claims. In verse 12, I will declare your righteousness and your deeds, but they will not profit you. You know what's surprising about this verse? God actually says, I will expose your righteousness. Now, we know by this time that their righteousness has been uh, a lot of rebellion. But as we will see in the next chapter, chapter 58, they actually thought they were following the Lord. They actually thought they were living righteously. They actually thought that they were on track with the Lord. And God says, I will, I, will, I, will ex- I will declare righteousness, but it will not profit you. Friends, there is a righteousness that will not profit us. It's a righteousness that is our own. And it's not the righteousness of God. The only way you and I can be righteous with God is if we turn away from our own wicked ways, from our own rebellion, from our own ignorance, and trust in Christ, and trust in what He has done in living a perfect, righteous life, and then dying on a cross, and on the third day being resurrected from the dead, proving that He was the Son of God, proving that He had paid for the penalty of the rebellion of God's people, of anyone who turn away from their rebellion and trust in Christ. Our only way to be made righteous with God, our only way to have a righteousness that will profit us, is if we have the righteousness of Christ. So, so therefore, if anyone this morning, if, any of your, if anyone has not yet turned to God in repentance and faith and trusting in Christ and His righteousness, I want to call you, I want to encourage you, turn today to God you'd like to know what that means, I would love to talk to you at the end of the service. Or if you were invited by another person here in the service, I encourage you to talk to that person and inquire more of what does it mean? What does it mean to turn to God and benefit from His righteousness? Because our righteousness will not benefit us. Will leave us empty. But more so, our, our way of rebellion or righteousness, as we may call it, our own righteousness, 
uh, actually leaves us helpless. Verse 13, God says, when you cry out, let your collection of idols deliver you. The wind will carry them off. A breath will take them away. I love how God puts an eternal perspective on our idols. The only reason we pursue idols is because we believe that they give us something worthwhile. Whether that's fame, reputation, a resourcefulness, whatever it is, joy, whatever it is. But God says one day, especially on that final day, when we will cry out against God or to God to be delivered, God says, I will leave you to the idols. And on that day, God says the idols will be carried off by the wind, by the breath. They won't be able even to sustain themselves, let alone you who worships them. God says the idols are so fragile that the wind can take them away. It's one of, the, one of God's greatest acts of grace and kindness towards us is to take away our idols before our eyes, before that day of judgment when we have to cry out before God. It is an act of God's grace and mercy towards us if he proves that our idols are worthless in our lifetime. This week I was talking to a member um, who has experienced that recently. Friends, idols can be taken away so easily, so quickly, that a wind and a breath can take him. Why would any of us trust in that which can be taken away by the wind and the breath? All this for characteristics of the way of rebellion. Six characteristics. Let's look at the way of dependence on the Lord. The contrast to all of this in this chapter, the opposite of rebellion against the Lord is dependence on the Lord. Look at verse 13, the, the, how verse 13 closes this with a contrast. The contrast is between those who depend on idols and those who depend on the Lord. Those who pursue idols will find their idols taken away by the wind, but, but the Lord gives an alternative. And the alternative is, but he who takes refuge in, the, in me shall possess the land and shall inherit my holy mountain. Friends, the opposite of pursuing idols is not not pursuing idols. Can I say that again? The opposite of not, of not pursuing idols is not not pursuing idols. The opposite of not pursuing idols is taking refuge in the Lord. You see, some of us might think, as long as I'm not, I don't have some glaring idol in my life that I'm giving my life to, as long as I'm not doing some crazy things like these people in, in Isaiah 57 were doing, I'm fine. But recognize this, that anything that is not pursuing the Lord, you're pursuing something else. Anything that's not relying on the Lord is reliance on something else. Some people feel that they don't, they're not rebelling against the Lord because they're not doing the horrible thing, sins that Israel was doing. But just wait until chapter 58, until next week. And we'll see that rebellion against the Lord are not only open sins that are blatant against God. Rebellion can be camouflaged in religious activity, as chapter 58 will openly explore for us. Here in chapter 57, we see that idolatry is contrasted with, with reliance on the Lord. Notice what God promises to those who take refuge in Him. 
verse 13, they shall possess the land and shall inherit my holy mountain. The land and the holy mountain, the book of Isaiah, refer not merely to physical realities, but it is an expression that symbolizes the coming kingdom of God. In other words, those who become heirs of the kingdom of God are those who take refuge in Him. Notice what else God promises to those who take refuge in Him. Verse 14, And it shall be said, Build up, build up, prepare the way, remove every obstruction from my people's way. This means that those who take refuge in the Lord, God is clearing up the way so that their restoration and their return to the Lord can be clear, can be, a, can be wide. More so, God promises to dwell with those who take refuge in Him. Look at verse 15. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place. But notice who else does God dwell with? And also with Him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. What does it mean to have a contrite and lowly spirit? The word contrite uh, can also be translated as crushed. A spirit that is crushed is a spirit that has no more hope in oneself. That's what it means to be contrite. To have no more hope in yourself. The word for lowly can also be translated as fallen. To have a spirit that is fallen is to have a spirit that is surrendered. There's no more strength in oneself. Humanly speaking, none of us would naturally incline or pursue to have a crushed and fallen spirit. We would prefer to have a, an upbeat and confident and exuberant attitude about everything we do in life. But here's a surprise that we find in this text. God describes himself living in these two extremities, the high and holy and lifted up places. But he also loves to dwell with those who are at the bottom were crushed, were fallen. He tells us that he dwells with those who, 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 who pursue, who have a contrite and lowly spirit. God dwells both in the unreachable heights and with the lonely, broken persons, as one person said. This means that those who mourn, who turn to the Lord with a contrite and lowly spirit, they have the assurance that the Lord will dwell with them. But you know what this also means, dear friends? That repentance, turning to the Lord, necessitates such a heart, feeling crushed and fallen, feeling contrite and lowly. When we call people to repentance, when we call people to turn to the Lord, we're calling them to fall down, to bow the knee, to recognize or acknowledge and embrace their crushedness, spiritually speaking. It's not merely just to invite Jesus in your heart. It's a call to death. It's a call to recognize our brokenness before God. But that call to, to, to fall down before God, crushed and fallen, comes with a great promise. And the promise is that those who, who do embrace their spiritual crushedness God revives. God restores. God brings new life. And God says, clear up the way. Clear up the way. Nothing will stand in the way of me reviving you. Nothing. 
friends, what is the benefit? What is the benefit of those whom, to whom God comes to dwell with? He, he brings new life. Friend, God is not despising a contrite and lowly spirit. And if God is not contrite, despising a contrite and lowly spirit, nor should we. Sadly, in our own pride, one of the hardest acts for us to do is to come to God with a contrite, crushed, and lowly, fallen spirit. Somehow, some of us think that we must, we must come to God with our performance. We must come to God with our pretense. We must come to God with, with what we think God owes us. Friends, come to God with contrition and humility. I love how David Jackman once said, Contrition and humility, the, re- the prerequisites of repentance, lead to fellowship with the high and lofty one, and so to personal revival. Remember, Jesus began his Sermon on the Mount. His first sermon recorded as the Sermon on the Mount. And the first sentence he uttered was a blessing. Remember the blessing? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs the kingdom of heaven. I wonder if there's anyone among us this morning who has kept up a prideful, hard, self-composed, self-sustaining spirit, thinking that you can do it on your own, thinking that your way is the best way. God says, embrace the fact that you're spiritually broken. Recognize your crushedness and come with that to God. I wonder how much do you prefer to cultivate a contrite and lowly spirit in you? Or do you avoid that, thinking that such a state of your spirit will not profit you very much? Instead, it is easy to think that you can avoid all that contrition and humility before God and just live the life that you think is best for you. Yet what a blessing we forfeit when we choose a confident, self-sustained spirit. We miss on God's aim to revive us. We miss on God dwelling with us. In the Christian faith, the path to new life is a path of humility and contrition before God. That's why if you want to grow in humility, in contrition before God, I want to recommend to you a, a short book by C.J. Mahaney called Humility. Read it. It's easy to read and very applicable. And if you want more to, to, to humble you, then start reading the Puritans. Just getting to read them will humble you. Just getting to read that old English, it has, you have to come down and, and recognize that I need to stoop down to a different a different level of English that I'm not used to. This is different for me. I don't feel comfortable in reading this. But read some of the Puritans. Read some of the, the, banner, uh, the banner books, Banner of Truth books. It will hum- help you develop and see what that contrition of heart looks like. God not only revives the lonely, but God also promises to heal the one whom he has struck down. In verse 17, God explains why he struck down his people. He says, because of iniquity. The iniquity of his unjust gain, I was angry. I struck him down. The sin of God's people triggered God's discipline. In the same verse, God gives us an explanation why his people have backslidden. And here's a little golden nugget. Why do we backslide? He went on backsliding in the way of his own heart. Verse 17. Friends, backsliding happens when we go the way of our own. Be very cautious when you feel drawn to follow the way of your own heart. It is the recipe for backsliding. Our greatest dangers are not outside of ourselves. Our greatest dangers are inside of us. Our own human sinful corrupt nature. 
That is the lure that draws us away from the Lord. And we don't get rid of that corrupted nature until we die. Be cautious of whom you listen to. You listen to your own heart. You're in dangerous waters. But God in His mercy promises in this very verse that despite the discipline that He brings, God is able to restore and to heal. Look at verse 18 and 19. I have seen His ways. Ways of rebellion. And God gives an unexpected promise. But I will heal him. God doesn't say, I have seen his ways and I'm waiting for him to heal himself. God says, I have seen his ways. But I will heal him. I will lead him and restore comfort to him and his mourners, creating the fruit of the lips. What is the fruit of the lips? It's unclear, but it's possible and likely that it is the, the fruit of the lips of confession, repentance, and trust in the Lord. God is the one who's creating in the mouths of those whom he is restoring the words of repentance and faith, the words of praise to God. And then God says, peace, peace to the far and to the near, says the Lord, and I will heal him. Do you hear the firm determination that God makes here to be a God who heals those who have experienced God's discipline? God creates a fruit of the lips. and God declares the message of peace, not only to those who are near, but also to those who are far. It's ultimately to those who take refuge in God. God promises peace to them. Regardless of where they're coming from, nearby or far off, God's peace will know no boundaries to those who take refuge in Him. And David Jack McGinn says so beautifully, God's peace, heavenly rest, is not for the good people. If that were so, heaven would be unpopulated. But who could possibly be good enough for God? Rather, heaven is for forgiven people, and forgiveness is the free gift of God. To the repentant. Friends, I pray that that would be our peace for every one of us. But this chapter ends with a final contrast. If all this peace looks good, it sounds great, you want to embrace it, here's a bottom line. Embrace it. Because staying on the path of rebellion leaves the wicked without any peace. Verse 20 and 21, but the wicked are like the tossing sea, for it cannot be quiet. Its waters Toss up myrrh and dirt. There is no peace for the wicked. Friends, it's not me saying that. It's not the politicians who say that. It's God who says that. God says there's no peace for the wicked. I pray that we would seek and return to the Lord if we have no peace with God. I pray that all of us who have been pursuing God and, and pursuing a, a path with, with Christ in our daily walks with Him, we would, be, we would be vigilant by the way of rebellion, how it can seep in and how it can lead us to mis, misapply, misalign our trust, to, to change our fears, to change our loves, so we turn away from the living God. I pray that we would be a people who experience God's peace because we trust and grow in that trust for the Lord. Let's pray.
Father, your word is true. Your word warns those who are inside your people not to take confidence in previous experiences or previous life aspects that we've had, but to consider our ways and to see who it is that we trust on and rely on and take refuge in. Father, give us eyes and ears to be aware and carefully examine the various ways rebellion can lure us. Help us to be a people who who cultivate a, a high view of who you are, Recognizing your greatness, recognizing your reliance, recognizing that there's nothing better, nothing more uh, foundational on which we can trust and rely our lives on than you. Father, give us the peace that comes from relying on you. And give us hearts that continually pursue that reliance. Give us hearts that are continually cultivating an attitude of contriteness and loneliness so that we may experience the reviving of your spirit in our hearts. It is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Let's stand and respond to God's word today.